Hello and welcome to the Kunstler Cast. Thanks for listening. My guest this go-round is David Collum, friend, gadfly, and distinguished professor of chemistry at Cornell University. This is Dave's first airing since being embroiled in some woke campus politics at his place of business. He's over that now and ready to rumble on a wide range of current events and fiascos. It's not for nothing that I consider him the great utility infielder of the thinking class or what little remains of it. Hello, Dave Collin. A pleasure to revisit the scene with you. And we haven't chatted in a while. And so much has happened on the scene. And let's start with the COVID-19 virus. I don't have any firm ideas about it. I'm not a scientist. And I find the information is far too confusing for me to make any firm judgments about it. Where are we with this bug? You're a scientist. I'm like you. If you say what's going on with the virus, I'll ask what day of the week it is. And then I'll take it from there. I've got so many notes and stuff from early on in the epidemic that that now seem sort of just so quaintly out of date. I've reached out to a lot of biochemists, and of course I talk to the economists a lot and stuff like that, and I find that that the biochemistry of the virus seems to still be a very elusive thing. And the biochemists, what I'll admit is once I talk to, they still seem quite nervous about it. And so, I'd love for them to say, oh, looks like bogus stuff to me, but they haven't. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, the information, as you've expressed, the information coming through all other sources seems to be so garbled that I've reached a point in my, my awareness that I, I believe almost nothing. One of the truisms I do believe is that I believe that our actions, whether justified or not, um, have utterly destroyed the global economy. So yeah, um, and we're going to get to that right away. That's that's the next that's thing I right. want to ask so, you. So the virus is a sideshow now for me. I think the mm-hmm. global economy is bigger than the virus. Right, and uh, the virus has certainly accelerated a crumbling economy that was already in trouble before the virus even landed. Right, just about every formerly normal activity has been either stopped dead or curtailed. I mean, we don't have restaurants anymore. Hotels are going out of business. There's no baseball. There's no movies. I mean, it's like all of modernity is. We left it somewhere down the road. What do you make of the uh, macro scene with the uh, economy? I got on the virus theme pretty quickly to the extent that, you know, it was just, it was just a, you know, a, a virus coming out of the meat markets in China, which, you know, how often do we see one of those? Yeah. So I didn't care until all of a sudden they shut down Wuhan and, and immediately, immediately the economic consequences hit me like a truck because some of my early tweets were in January where I was saying, and it was late January, if I remember correctly, where I was saying, you know, how many parts are there in a car? How many of them are made in Wuhan? And and how many of them are optional? And the answer is thousands, uh, many, and none are optional. I saw the, the destruction of the global supply chain instantaneously take a hit. I must admit it hasn't been as bad as I thought it was going to be, but I I had a lot of people saying, look, we can't get the chips we need for our devices. I was reaching out to people. And uh, some of the 
big thinking macroeconomists were on the same page. I started networking with the guys that I know, like Stephen Roach and and David Einhorn, and a guy I don't know well, but had a lot of exchanges with was Jim Bianco, who I give credit for being on it furiously and and really ringing the bell. Mm-hmm. And you can't shut down a region of China without doing vast destruction. Now, I think the reason it hasn't turned out as bad as I thought is because they opened up fast. I don't even know what to make of it. For all I know, they're dying like crazy there, but they just said, okay, we shut it down. Now we're opening up and tough, right? They got 20% extra guys in this young generation. Mm-hmm. We can lose a few, right? I, I don't know. But if they had stayed shut down, then we'd be missing more than just toilet paper. Yeah, I do hear a lot of chatter from uh, people I know about the difficulty in getting all kinds of machine parts. I do think that something is underway and that we're in a strange kind of moment of suspended animation where something really serious has happened and we just don't feel it. So, you know, somebody has hit us upside the head with a fungo bat and we haven't quite reacted. As you know, I I can entertain any idea, no matter how crazy, until it becomes (laughs) stupid. And sometimes beyond the point that it becomes stupid. When it first happened, my first thought, my very first thought is China's banking system is collapsing and they need something as a cover story. Uh And so I thought if they don't want to say, look, we screwed up. And so they say, ah, it's the virus, right? And by the way, that is a prevailing theme. And that is the virus is given cover for all sorts of very badly run things to blame the virus instead of accepting uh-huh. guilt. We were talking about the Chinese banking system, and they really haven't sorted anything out. You know, they've still got a mountain of bad loans, a Mount Everest of bad loans. For good or for ill, the whole banking system is really accounts to nobody but the Chinese Communist Party when all is said and done. You also know that you can't possibly fix a banking system by inserting a crisis. It might precipitate a collapse, which then eventually represents the blowout before the the dawn reappears. But uh, it certainly isn't a constructive way to fix the banking system. Well, what are your, these other homies you mentioned, Einhorn and Bianco, et cetera, have you talked to them about the Chinese banking system and what their thoughts are? And what what are they telling you? I wanted to find out about that. I'd be be chatting more with... um, Kyle Bass. I try to keep those chits, which I, I, I occasionally chat with him, but I, I, I don't want to exhaust them, so I haven't hounded him. Sure. It seems to become a digital stalker in this world. But he would know most about the Chinese banking system. I think the Hong Kong banking system is is in a state of a very dire, sort of close to collapse, is my understanding. The Hong Kong dollar has got a serious problem. So uh-huh. Kyle seems to be more focused on that, but I bet he could talk about China. I haven't had a lot of communications with Roach recently when we were talking, um, and he's a China bug. He lived uh, there for a while. He lived in in Asia for a long time. Right. So I negotiated um, a Real Vision interview with Roach. So so Real Vision did an interview with um, with Steve Bannon and Kyle Bass. I said, "Wow!" And they talked about China. And if you get a real if you get Real Vision, that one you want to see. Mm-hmm. I asked if they could get Roach on, and he presented the other side of the story. So he's a China guy, and I don't know where he stands on China now, but I think our country's in a mess, and i got to confess, that's the part I care about. Yeah, well, let's talk about that, because we're now right at the threshold of a point where a colossal cascade of debt is about to default, right? Mortgages, Mm -hmm. car loans, 
all kinds of obligations, including, you know, insurance payments and, you know, this whole daisy chain of money that people owe. How can it not thunder through the, the whole banking system without leaving a rubble trail of destruction if, you know, once the, the tributaries stop feeding the mainstream of money? Well, you know, I've been seeing stats on how many people are not paying their mortgage and how many people are not paying their car payments, and they're very large numbers. I think the Federal Reserve thinks they can print their way through this mess. Yeah, what do you think? Well, I think they're creating a junkie in the process, I, more so than normal. So, uh, for example, the people collecting $600 a week, I don't know how they're going to get those people off of the $600 a week. And I don't know how they're going to get the companies off of their freebies. And I think I think they will therefore tend to stay, right? That if a company is getting all these freebies, if people are getting freebies, teachers, unions are saying we're not going back to work unless because they get paid as much on unemployment. Uh-huh. And so so I, I think the, the freebies represent this inertia that the whole system is going to face. And once you stop paying your mortgage and nothing bad happens because everyone feels sorry for you, when are you going to start paying it? Well, money has to be attached to something of value or else some uh, expectation that you will produce something of value before too long. And neither of those is the case with the money from the Federal Reserve. Well, yeah. So the Fed somehow thinks they can replace wealth creation with money creation. That's just stupid. So if, if society stops creating anything at some point, it just ceases to function. And, you know, based on a lot of our past discussions, the ability to create stuff depends on fossil fuels and all sorts of things, but but it also depends on people actually working. Right. And so I, I just, I, I don't quite see how we get out of this headlock that we're in right now. Yeah, and many of the people who will or are not be paying their mortgages and their car loans have not only... Uh, fallen behind, but they've lost their livelihoods and their businesses. And they yeah. met, once you get your job back and you haven't been paying your mortgage, you're going to rush out and pay your mortgage right away? Well, also, by the way, th- this mortgage forgiveness was not, you know, they, they didn't write off those months that you didn't pay. They just they, postponed it. So eventually yeah. people are going to have to make good on those. I, I have no idea what the system is for that to happen, but nobody's talking about it right now. Well, so there's a story coming out of Wells Fargo where they put a whole bunch of people into forbearance without telling them and without them being able to stop it. And apparently it actually puts a ping on your credit mm-hmm. and the people didn't ask for it. And they were paying their bills. And, and then the, the question that no one has yet been able to answer is why and what did Wells Fargo get from it? Mm-hmm. And, and when that answer shows up, be interested, but you can bet somehow there's there's a profit motive in doing that, mm-hmm. and and so right now the system's dead cold. It's like Minnesota, fifty below zero, and you're trying to start your car. <laughs> yeah, well, you live in a a pretty decent Main Street town, a university town in in upstate New York, and it's one of the more exemplary places in America that kind of works because it's got a couple of big institutional businesses there, two colleges. What are you seeing or hearing about the regular economy of Ithaca and how it's been affected by uh, the COVID shutdown? Are people being shoved out of apartments? Are businesses closing? Have restaurants gone away? I think we're probably still in the phase where businesses are limping along again with help 
And, you know, it's just like doing CPR at some point you say, okay, you got to stop now. I think we are going to lose a lot. I think they're trying to hang on long enough for this to get back going. But we've got what was at one point the nation's youngest mayor, a guy named Savante Mirak. And he said, he said that, that the economy right now is catastrophic. And he says, that's if the students come back. He says, if the students don't come back, it'll be cataclysmic. I'm not sure catastrophic versus cataclysmic, but, um, yeah. and, and, and so everything will fail at that point if the students don't come back. Cornell's bringing them back, at least that's their current intention. I don't know what Ithaca College is doing. Um, Are they bringing them back uh, like uh, for real wholeheartedly or is it going to be some kind of a half-assed thing where half the dorm rooms are occupied and half the classes are on computer? And Well, yes, it, there, there will, it will not be a normal semester, that's for sure. We're supposed to social distance and I did a little quick math and I think I'm pretty close to correct. And that is that if you take a normal lecture room and you socially distance at the level we're supposed to do, you get, you can fill it at one sixth capacity. Wow. Right. And so what it means is that, a, you know, a class that normally has 300 kids in it, you, you can't teach that. Mm -hmm. You can teach a class with 50 kids in it. And so what I think is going to happen is the monster courses, the big courses, are going to all move online. The smaller classes are going to move into the big classrooms, right? Oh, yeah. And so we're basically throw the, 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 the blood-sucking large classrooms under the bus for this, is my guess. And then um, the housing is a fascinating problem. I, I'm not quite sure what went into the decisions, but we have, for example, dorm rooms where it's like a main living area plus four bedrooms that are all attached in yeah, some way. Yeah, that, that was the big trend in the 80s, 90s. Right. right. And we have a lot of new dorms. We have a lot of new dorms that were paid for by the guy who run, ran duty-free shops. He, he helped fund them all. Hmm. And the problem is, is they're, I think they're going to half capacity. And so then the question is, well, where does everyone else go? And I don't have a good answer for that. I, I really don't. And, and at the same time, I hear, I hear rumors that they're planning on, they're saying everyone's going to come back. And, I, you know, if I were a parent, I'd be thinking twice about sending my son off to college and paying, you know, what is a non-trivial sum of money to get a non-trivial drop in quality of education. I'd be tempted to say, look, why don't you stay here and go to the community college, rack up a few credits, read a few books, you know, whatever. I don't even know if Cornell can plan on how many kids are coming back. Maybe they're counting on some no-shows. Maybe that's what well, I don't listen, know. we're going to get back to the college thing because uh, I have more to ask you in, about that. But I want to get back to the just the general economy. We have this situation also where if people are not paying their rent, of course, the landlords in turn, you know, have to meet their obligations and pay their taxes and and make their financing work. I've been very worried about what I see happening in New York City. It seems to me that New York City may never come back that it's now going to enter a permanent contraction. After all, you've got office buildings, which for the moment, and maybe for a, quite a while to come, are functionally obsolete. And then you've got all the commercial stuff, the, the shops, restaurants, and everything else that kind of depend on the high occupancy of the buildings. Let me make a uh, James Kunstler response to that. And that is one sort of natural solution, which would take a very long time, would be to move the population back in 
And so imagine taking an office building. I don't know how you do this. The engineers might say this is ridiculous, but turning an office building into condos. Well, yeah, you know, I saw something like that in Johannesburg. It was a very strange uh, thing that I saw. After apartheid was discontinued, almost all, all, literally all of the corporate tenants of the downtown skyscrapers in Johannesburg moved out to these fortified campuses in the far, far suburbs. And uh, the downtown of Johannesburg, I would compare as being comparable to downtown Denver, you know, about... 15 blocks of skyscrapers, something like that. And all of these buildings had become squats. They actually didn't reconfigure the, the floors and turn them into actual apartments. They just, just people just moved in. And then one by one, the system started to fail. You know, the elevators would fail. People would have to carry water, you know, 23 stories up. And, but they were still living there. That gets it. You know, why... Why, for example, is Africa never flourish? And, and it's easy to come up with various arguments. The two most compelling I've seen, one is they have lousy navigable waterways. The second is, right now at least, they have terrible property laws. And so if yeah. you don't own the property, um, you're not going to keep it up. And so as soon as, as soon as squatting becomes the norm, then you're, you're heading on a slippery slope. One of the great things about the U.S., right, what the, the, the American experiment was as we push westward, we somehow brought property rights with us. Yeah. And, well, it was a fundamental and, uh, part of the Constitution, really. Right, right up until the present, where now you get this feeling they're going to be trying to take them back from us. My image was one a more utopian world where it said, okay, the guys who own the skyscrapers will reconfigure it. And if, if you can move sort of the high rent payers back into the city more cheaply, right? Because right now, condos are a fortune in New York. Yeah. So it would drive down the price. And, and then it would make, for example, apartments that they were staying in, you know, more affordable. So in principle, it would just move the population back into the urban setting. I don't see that happening for a number of reasons. Uh, not the least would be the cost of reconfiguring all of the, those floors of, of those skyscrapers and, you know, replumbing them. You know, each unit would need its own bathroom. You know, right now they have a plumbing stack that goes, you know, it runs 80 stories down in a straight line down the whole building. And it's not configured for showers and dishwashing yeah. and, and, and washing and stuff like that. Now, I, I, this is a really idealistic view that in some sense came just came to me while reading someone talking about affordable housing. Whenever you say affordable, you're yeah, really going to turn the, uh, the, the you know, high rise into affordable housing. Yeah. Um, well, there's another interesting element to it that uh, I learned about in the last couple of weeks, especially for the actually the high end condos. And yeah. this to me is a sign that the entire condo system of financing is now going to collapse. A lot of those uh, luxury uh, apartment buildings depended on getting very high rents from their ground floor retail tenants. And now that they're gone, the whole formula for the homeowners association, you know, for a, a 60 story building doesn't work anymore. I can see that beginning to cause very serious problems. I know people who are moving out of New York City, you know, who never would have thought about it before. My literary agent moved out about two months ago, and he's a New York City literary agent. You know, his whole business was going around having lunch with publishers. So is he doing it because he anticipates the problem? Uh, he's doing it, I think, because he sees the writing on the wall. He moved to Cape Cod. Yeah, so, and he's so a young guy. He's not some old dude moving too. to a summer house. He He rented a house on Cape Cod. He found cheap rentals because the people who had buildings to rent on Cape Cod 
thought that the whole tour season was going to be screwed up, so they lowered their prices drastically for monthly rentals. Right. Um, and then there's other consequences. Like, for example, um, I read somewhere the tourist industry was 10% of the global economy if you look at all the tentacles of it. Sure. Now, it sounds high to me, but I, I also can't come up with a reason why it's not right. I think the tourist industry is going to be going to be different. Now, oh, God, I yeah. I can't say it's going to go away, but, you know, I, first of all, I can't see packing yourself into a cruise ship with 7,000 people. So the cruise ships, I think, are going to get scuttled almost. I don't see how I don't see how they run those. And then, uh, you know, the airlines are in trouble and, and Zoom meetings, right? Who's going to get on a plane of a meeting when you say, look, we've all figured out how to use Zoom. Let's just uh, let's just meet up tonight at seven o'clock. Well, the airlines is really no small thing. The, the airlines are in deep, deep trouble. Another problem with all of that stuff is it has to run at the scale that it's designed to run at. There may not be a way to really downscale it. You know, an industry like aviation builds up over a 90 year period or something or 100 year period from, you know, a bunch of small businesses with small planes. And, you know, slowly and slowly it gets to the scale that it's at. It doesn't work coming down the other side of the mountain. You know, you don't instantly go back to, you know, having smaller planes and smaller fleets and smaller uh, routes and, and everything. The margins stunk even at, during good times, right? Uh, they, uh, they're in a perpetual bankruptcy. And, yeah. you know, big news would be when a plane, when an airline made money. I don't think we're ever going to fly around the world the way we used to. And they were underpricing the tickets, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And their profit margins were just terrible. And so I don't quite know how it'll settle out. I'm sure the free market will find a way to satisfy the demand, but you're right. It's You can't have monstrous palatial uh, terminals and fancy, you know, you look at the infrastructure of an airport, you don't even see the infrastructure, all the tunnels underneath it and stuff. Yeah. That can't be covered by, the, by an airline industry that's working at 50% capacity. Name a restaurant that can work at 50% capacity. Name a store that can work at 50% capacity. So this consumerism, which you've been railing on for many, many years now, has finally, finally been jammed in our face. And one of the things we learned while we sat in our houses for three months is that there's a lot of stuff we don't need. Yeah, I'm amazed of how little money I'm spending, actually. That's exactly right. Isn't that astounding? Barber, for example, you know, how many people got clippers and cut their own hair? And, you know, barbers thought they were recession proof. And all of a sudden people said, I I can cut my own hair. Yeah, I actually did go to the barber the other day. Yeah, I was starting to look like the bride of Frankenstein. You know, their flow is not good. Yeah. Speaking of flows, the main takeaway on the whole financial scene seems to be that, uh, you just can't stop capital flows. You know, it's the flow of capital that matters, you know, not necessarily how much there is. And that's one of the problems with this whole Federal Reserve program is that, you know, the flow of capital from the tributaries to the main rivers has stopped. And it's like when your blood stops flowing, you know, that that's it, basically. It's curtains. I think the current Fed model is, is that if they can somehow just keep artificially pumping right? Like some sort of uh, artificial heart, that the system will just get back to normal on its own eventually. And that's the part I don't buy. Yeah, that's the part where you're doing CPR for three and a half hours. Yeah. And, you know, assets, by the way, 
typical assets are so profoundly overpriced. One of the things people don't understand that the optimists say, well, you know, the Fed's going to keep them up. Well, something like the Triple Q, which is the 100 biggest tech companies, has a price earnings ratio listed as the mid 20s, which means you're getting a 4% return if you view it as a company, mm -hmm. right? A collective company. Turns out if you read the prospectus, and I didn't read it, but I've read the guys who've read it. <laughs> Uh, it turns out that, that it's a total fraud. The way they calculate the price earnings ratio of the triple Q is that they take all the PEs and just average the numbers. So you 100 different PEs, you average the numbers. Now, if the PEs over 40, they round it down to 40. And if the PEs doesn't exist because there's no earnings, they give it a number of 40. Mm -hmm. It's that fraudulent. So now... You've got an asset that if you take the collective, the conglomerate of the triple Q, which are the biggies, and you take all their profits and all their market caps, same thing, what, you ask what's the price earnings ratio, it's close to 100, which means you've got a company that's got a 1% profit margin. And so then the question is, once something is that overpriced, how do you get out of that? Because it means returns going forward will be 1% annualized, plus some growth maybe, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. You know, the best estimate. And is that, and and the answer is there's no way out. Once you have overvalued assets, you either got to wait a long, long time for GDP to slowly grind you out of that overvaluation without the asset price moving, or you got to drop the price pretty precipitously. Well, and, it looks like it, our idea of what GDP is will bear no relation in a few years to what it used to be. I spent two hours on the phone this morning with a guy named Tony Deeden, and we, we spent a lot of that time talking about the meaning of GDP, and that's exactly right. Yeah. GDP is such a, a flawed metric of anything, and uh, I, I'm pushing the idea of net domestic product, which is GDP minus deflation, oh. minus depreciation, excuse me, and that is a very different story. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let, let's leave uh, finance and economy behind it to some degree and, and talk about the political psychodrama of the moment. God, I'm wondering how much all of this neurotic behavior that's going on on, on the, the collective scene out there is maybe based on some uh, unarticulated apprehension of the kind of economic collapse that that we're talking about. If people are sensing something and it's so frightening, and they just don't know what to do with it, especially young people. I think the fact that people have time on their hands, you can't have a 500,000 person protest without 500,000 people not being at work at that moment in time. Uh -huh. And so it, it buys people all the free time in the world. They're staring at their four walls. They wonder if they'll ever have their job back. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of angst. I also think that the serious seriously twisted component of it is that there is a group of very angry young people who have finally figured out how to to achieve their goal of destroying the system mm -hmm. so there's a, there's a real vastly growing neo-marxist population out there and and they have tactically figured out how to push very bad ideas using very very clever tactical approaches so yeah well, it does raise the question that does the uh, left, the political left, really want a Marxist future? Because the Soviets have demonstrated pretty well how to fail magnificently doing that. Do we need to try that again? You know, I, 
that's why, you know, The Fourth Turning is a popular book. It's about every 80 years, you apparently have to go back to the start and try it again. And, and so there's a sort of a national or, or a collective amnesia. Yeah, and, you know, I'm a right-wing bred capitalist, and what I'm seeing is not capitalism. And mm. I do see capitalism. I do see some great stuff, but but there's been an encroachment of, of just crap, and, and they have a case, right? They have a case that the yeah. system is not completely fair. I used to think that the rich got richer because they were the super achievers. And, and now it's pretty clear it's because they get to the money the Fed passes out first, the Cantillon effect, and um, if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. And so I, I do think the, the people who are disenfranchised have a legitimate gripe. You know, and after the 09 crisis, uh, there was no purging of the system. There was no retribution to the bad guys. And I think they said, wait a minute, that's just not fair. You know, my ass is still singed by the fact that they rounded up nobody. Yeah. And prosecuted nobody. Yeah. So. Well, you're on a campus that has had its share of uh, wokesterism. Yeah. Over the last several years. And what's the wokester scene like at Cornell without the students around to keep it woke? Well, is the faculty know, woke enough? This is where it gets a little complicated. So, for example, my colleagues, 30 colleagues in chemistry. Chemistry is a meritocracy for the most part. So we all have to raise money. We raise money based on our merits. We run our research programs like a small startup company. And if we don't put up, we lose the money. And, and so my colleagues are a very hardworking, very ambitious group that were called out of a very large herd because of their potential. And so they happen to be, it's 29 to one left wing to me. Mm-hmm. But as I look at them, I don't see whack jobs. I've got some colleagues who lean way left, way left, but they totally sign off on meritocracy. And so at some point, what is that? What do you want? So, but, but I think if I walked out onto the arts quad and I, and I started prowling around other, other majors moving away from STEM, I'd, I'd find some rather curious thinking, I'm sure. <laughs> hey, listeners, you know we have only one advertiser on this podcast, David McElvaney's ICA Wealth Management. They are a precious metals-oriented company. The past few months have been especially turbulent, both in financial markets and out on the streets of our nation. If you're interested in wealth preservation, you must give serious consideration to gold and silver. There are two proven and effective strategies for compounding ounces in your precious metals portfolio without putting more money in. But there's only one company you'll find that has been advising clients in these strategies and doing so for for over 30 years. McIlvaney ICA advises you on and manages your precious metals holdings and will not let you get started in dead-end products. Instead, your personal advisor will make sure your portfolio is set up for free ounce accumulation strategies as the markets change and keep you informed on when to make a move. This can also be easily done within your IRA. Call 1-800-525-9556 for a free report to learn more or go to icagoldcompany.com to download the PDF. By the way, I'm also a big fan of David McIlvaney's podcast, the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, which is truly among the best on the web. 
and gives you a great snapshot of David's generous personality. And now back to the podcast. Well, you've had some friction with the woke factions. Uh, yeah. Cornell. I believe you've had some recent adventures, actually, with, uh, with the administration. I would say I was not with the administration as much as the world thinks. So to try to make a pretty long story short, back in 17, I played a prominent role in fighting a unionization effort on campus. So I organized the anti-union team to, to, to fight the battle. And the union organizers played, played it brilliantly. They refused to engage. That was, so by I, the way, that was to unionize the graduate students? Yeah, and it's just a bad idea. And you can be pro-union and still see it's a bad idea for grad students. And it's not an interesting story, but unionization works best the more homogeneous the group is. And grad students are not homogeneous. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I fought the union and, and they made a tactical error in the 12th hour due to an email I sent. We got into a brawl and they lost the vote by a razor thin margin and they were mad. So they attacked me about three weeks later. They did a canceling. Right. The cancel culture showed up back in 17 where they went through my Twitter feed and took a bunch of stuff out of context mm -hmm. and tried to make me look very bad and evil. And so it turns out that uh, one of my law school colleagues, who's who himself is a pretty contentious guy, wrote a counterattack and obliterated him. And so that then went away. And the fact that I was fighting to oppose the union, the administration was fine by that because because, well, first and foremost, I was sanctioned by the university to do so. I mean, I was I was authorized to do so I, from the highest possible levels. The guys who attacked me didn't know that I wasn't just a rogue professor. Mm -hmm. So then late one night, and you know the story, but I'll say it anyways. When the, when the guy got pushed over in Buffalo and cracked his head, one of my friends, the guy QTR, Chris Irons, said how awful it was. And I took the other side. I, I said, you know, the, the, the guy had to give him the cop space. What was he doing? Uh, he's feeble. Why was he there? And I said something to the effect that was a self-inflicted wound. And next thing I knew was a complete shitstorm, a massive one that I didn't even quite understand what was happening. And I quickly locked down my Twitter feed. And, and it turns out it was a very organized attack. And I think that the, the, the union antagonists from three years earlier were somehow in the middle of it. I, I, huh. I, you could see their fingerprints all over, but the, there was something more organized than that. Next thing I know, there's websites being put up. You can you know, automate the process of writing a letter to the university. And so the university got buried, got buried in complaints. And then all of a sudden, there's this army of social justice warriors going through every shred of my history and Googling me and, and digging stuff up and sending emails to the university. And, and so they were basically in, in a war room situation at that point. Hmm. Now, I have done so many things for the university in so many ways, and the university knows this. And so I sincerely believe they were attempting to just find a way out of this mess. So I don't blame the university. Now, I had communications with some trustees who were very supportive, who actually leaned in on the president, said, don't even think about it, you know, that sort of thing. I was told from good sources that if they ever did try to do anything against me, they'd get crushed in court. And I already thought about that. But and so uh, but the university was just trying to find a way to back out of this situation. And they eventually ended up condemning what I said without telling anyone what I said. <laughs> which was fine, and then just shut up. And so I viewed that as, okay, I, I, had, a, I had a number of pretty bad weeks there for a while. It yeah. was not a comfortable couple of weeks. 
actually my brother-in-law, who's I shall not name, but he's a pretty well-known guy. And uh, he stopped over and said, uh, said, you know, he kind of woke me out of a bit of a slumber I was in. You know, I was thankful that we were sheltering, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's stuck where they were. And he said, you know, Dave, you got to stand up to this, right? I was going to write an apology to my department. I wasn't going to apologize to the social justice warriors because, A, I, I won't lie in an apology, but I could apologize to my department for raining hell on them, right? Mm-hmm. Sincerely. And, and he said, no, you can't do it. He said, he said, if you don't stand up to them, who will? If you fold, then the next person will fold. And, and I wasn't going to fold, but I realized I had to take a much firmer stance. Yeah. So I just, I'm no apology. My colleagues, you know, reached out to me and stuff like that. And so everything was, everything was fine and, and, and they quieted down. And I had a daily routine where I'd search my name on Google and search my name on Twitter and see what was being said about me. And, and it, it did finally quiet down. And so I think we're okay now. This, by the way, is the first podcast that I've done since locking everything down back in, what was it, about April or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, I've got a folder full of podcast requests. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the status. What kind of helps me a little bit is that the canceling culture got even more rogue and more renegade to the point where I think someone retrospectively can say Colin was just a pixel. In, in the story because they went after a business school guy in Chicago and they went after this guy in UNC who just, by the way, committed suicide. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Um, and someone astutely noted, I think they just created a martyr. Um, I think that's there may be some truth in that. Um, I've been in communication with him. He didn't seem distraught. Was he a science guy or no, I can't even remember the field. He was looking for trouble, in my opinion. I was not looking for trouble and found it, but he was looking for it. He was pretty antagonistic. Mm-hmm. And he some of the stuff that he said, I'm going, thinking, you know, did you really have to say that? Was that really constructive? Pretty sort of, you know, south of the Mason-Dixon line thinking. I would not want to have to defend his public stance beyond just saying, look, free speech. I'm I'm kind of wondering whether the entire higher ed system in the USA is destroying itself completely. They went a long way towards towards that with their financial racketeering with the college loan system. But the intellectual racketeering of, you know, intersectional critical studies and all the the torrent of bullshit that went along with that seems to have destroyed the intellectual character of the campus as well and I don't see the system surviving that at least not at the scale that it's at now i I think it's going to become a very elite activity for you know some sort of elite that remains with us and that these large institutions are going to uh break down and fold up well again um in part what you're describing is a slice of a campus if you're paying a quarter of a million dollars for a bachelor's degree and your kid majors in any one of half a dozen studies for which the, the highest paid person in the world is about $30,000, you're wasting your money. And, and so I think at some level, what we might see is that there's a better consumers. And if I were a parent, my kid was studying one of these things that ends in the word studies, I'd, I'd say, look, no, I'm not sending you to Cornell to study that subject. Well, do the, do I, the I, universities really have to start just uh, calling the departments and getting really serious about getting rid of these idiotic programs? 
Uh, and will they be forced to financially? That's what they'll do. But here's the problem. Those programs tend to be not very expensive, too. So chemistry is a very expensive program. Uh You know, people somehow think chemistry is a cash cow. It is not a cash cow. It's expensive to run a chem building. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are cash cows on campus. But what chemistry in good universities brings is, is fame and bring the scholarship and physics does this and the stems do this and you know um you know other other departments like i I think you can have a very good psychology department i think i think in the world of sort of the halfway between science and humanities i think feels like psychology are totally legit Mm -hmm. Uh, but then you end up way over there it's not a big slice of the campus although what i can tell you is we have I did the math. We have, I think, 50, 50 tenure, tenure track English professors. Wow. That surprised me, actually. Now we have a lot of kids who take English, but that surprised me. And, you know, in the olden days, maybe a lot of those kids went off to law school, but now law school is not worth the money. And in the olden days, those kids maybe went off to become journalists, but there is no journalism now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so then the question is, is the world moved on from needing the product of of this many literate people. And uh, I don't know. Well, let's move on from that to the final module here, because I, I, I want to hear what you have to say about politics, electoral politics explicitly. Can the uh, Democrats go ahead and nominate Joe Biden? He, he seems like an absolutely emperor's new clothes kind of candidate. Everybody knows that there's something missing there that he ain't right. He's unfit in some way, mentally disabled. What do you think they're up to with that? How can they pull this one off? I don't know how they can pull it off. I had a theory for quite a while during the the peak of of the New York City virus, right? As we were getting day after day after day, uh, Cuomo, um, Andrew Cuomo, and day after day after day, we were getting zero Biden. And my thing was that they were positioning Cuomo to uh, to take over. And it was going to be a draft Cuomo. And if I'm right, they better hurry up because it's well, getting kind of late. He kind of screwed the pooch on that with the killing all those people in the nursing homes. You know, but in the world of, you know, presidential politics, where where does that appear on the scale when you got Hillary selling uranium to the Russians? And, <laughs> right. So so I'm, I'm not sure. You know, Gary Hart got booted out of there because he had a blonde sitting on his lap and a boat called the monkey business. That would not get you booted out of the game now. Yeah. And, and so the question is, I could even say to, about Cuomo as a non Cuomo fan in the heat of the battle they made mistakes. Mm-hmm. So he sent people off to the nursing homes. Someone didn't think that through at all, but I, I think if he just owned it, I think he could get by that because by the way, you know, there's, it's not like his, his opponent is a flawless individual. Well, what about Biden himself? So Biden himself is a curious case. So here the Democrats lose in 16 in a horrifying way for them. And they somehow their lesson learned is to nominate a 50 year veteran of politics who therefore is not necessarily new blood. He's not progressive. He's got a terrible history. I do believe the pictures of him fondling young girls are not just the Republican hijinks. I think he's there's way, way, way too many compendia on YouTube of him groping kids. Hmm. 
And meanwhile, he's now totally losing his marbles. And I think the evidence that's pretty good based on the fact that A, the, him trying to talk, they don't work very well. And B, he's not talking anymore. So, yeah. you know, there's not a guy running for president. So I think they may try to get him elected from his basement. Oh, and, my goodness. Really? And, you think they'll go forward with it? I, I've been convinced uh, that they were going to switch him out at the convention. I thought that's where Cuomo was going to come in. Yeah, I thought that's where Hillary was going to come in. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, she okay. kind of owns the Democratic Party. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah she actually did do a LBO on, on the DNC <laughs> yeah. four years ago. Okay, well, that's the convention. Then there's the election. It seems like we're heading into a situation where the election itself may be unresolvable or unresolved one way or another. And if that's the case, I can't imagine an outcome other than some kind of a civil war. And not I don't mean a reenactment of the blue versus the gray, but something really very disturbing. Pandemonium. Yeah, pandemonium. I've been trying to figure out what's best for society. Here's what might be best for society. If they slipped Cuomo in and then he won, I'd say, you know, I'm not a Cuomo fan, but that might be a giant step towards calming everyone the hell down. And, and it's, Cuomo can do the job. Yeah, I, right? I agree with you, whether you like him or not. You know, I live, live near Albany and I know people who work around him and they don't like him very much. He's regarded as a uh, really a nasty individual, an unappetizing personality. But I don't think there's any question that, you know, he's got his marbles and he's he's not stupid. And where he's different than Hillary is I think Hillary set a legal ethical bar that was just too low for me. I just couldn't possibly. And and Hillary could have been fine as a president, but she's just done too many things that I, I, I can't sign off on. I think Obama's got a lot of dirt in the closet, but but he doesn't disgust me. Yeah. I, I'm impressed by the guy at so many levels. I think Cuomo would be fine. I don't I don't have an allergic reaction to him. I don't see who else they would slip in. You know, if they slip in Hillary and she loses again or something, holy moly, right? Yeah, well, that would be the end of the party, I think. Well, I, if the party seems to be trying to self-destruct. I find myself in this odd situation, never having been a Democrat, of worrying that that Pelosi and Schumer are losing control of their party. Mm -hmm. Need a strong Democratic Party for the system to be have balance and mm -hmm. equilibrium. If they lose and 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 Omar, what's her name, and and Rashida, what's her name, and and, and if they get control of the party, then oh, oh heaven only knows what comes next. I think Maybe, there's a good chance that Rashida Taleb and. Uh, Ilhan Omar are going to lose their own elections. Oh, really? I'm, yeah. I, 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 I think that that's a possibility. Uh, the Democrats got pushed so far left. They got bullied to the left. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I miss the days of Tip O'Neill. Right? <laughs> that, <laughs> wow, they, that's ancient history now, man. I know. It is ancient history. But in some sense, when the country is run by old white guys in smoky back rooms cutting deals, it it ran smoothly. Here's a really outlandish idea that uh, any wokesters listening to are, are going to probably have a nervous breakdown about. Aren't you a little nostalgic for the days when uh, old white guys ran things? Well, um, the newspapers were better. Public radio was better. 
<laughs> well, I'm not sure that's causation versus just correlation. Okay. okay. Right. But, You're the but science guy. I would have no trouble with if Elizabeth Warren had gotten traction. I, I, oh, she, I would. I think she's just well, She's moving ghastly. way left, but the rule is go left for the nomination, go to the center. And she's anti-bank, and I'm anti-bank at this yeah, point. She's a terrible person. She's she's dishonest. Well, she's I, that's dishonest. part of it. See, that's the part I didn't see years ago when I used to chat with her at night by email, and I, I and she seemed honest to me then. I, yeah. I worry now. I agree with you on that, but somehow the Democrats managed to take half of a 350 million people country and and find the most wretched possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> That's like Winston Churchill's old saying that Americans will always do the right thing after they exhaust all the other possibilities. Right. Well, I thought they had already. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got two more things to, uh, that I want to ask you about, perhaps as quickly as you want to take them. But what's your estimation of Donald Trump finally after three and a half years of him being on the scene and in power? Well, first of all, you would be hard pressed to argue that the world spun off his axis. So the people who said that the world will be in catastrophic shape under Trump, I think, don't have a very good case. His performance in the COVID crisis, I think there's things that he did that were really good and going to be shown to be right, but he took a beating for. Mm -hmm. uh, what I think is the unfair comparison, and he's, to anyone listening, he's a super, super flawed individual, right? And uh, I'm Trump tolerant, but it's not like I wouldn't rather have some guy who looks like Obama, uh, you know, and who can speak coherently and stuff like that. But no president, I think Jimmy Carter articulated this very clearly, no president has had to put up with the guff that he had to put up with. So people forget that while he was making decisions about COVID and during that, let's say, I'm still unclear as to what the hell it is, but let's say there was a critical moment there where the decisions had to be made and they were made poorly. He was being impeached. Yeah. And so, and people say, well, you got to be able to do multiple things. I go, when you're being impeached, that's kind of the game. And so while you're being impeached, some goddamn, you know, wet market virus coming out of China is not at the top of your to-do list of that day. And and so, and people have forgotten that, you know, the what seems pretty clear to me that the FBI and CIA were going at him and, and you know, they were convicting his inner circle on false charges. And I know there's people who think, oh, that's not true. They were guilty. I don't think so. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, I want to ask you about that next because uh, do you think that it matters that all of the horrendously dishonest operations of Russiagate and Ukraine gate, impeachment gate have not been resolved in any way? It's kind of the same situation as the banking thing was in 2008-9. Well, so let's say Comey and Brennan and these guys did what we'll say the Republican team says they did, they should be in prison for the, for many, many decades. That mm -hmm. it's treasonous. It's treason of a higher order if they really tried to topple a presidency with fake charges. Do you think that it's damaging to the country that the, they haven't been charged or tried or, or that I, nothing's happened? They didn't. It's damaging that they haven't been tried because, again, we haven't cleansed the system. And there's at least half the population who thinks that it had to be. Another half might think that nothing was done wrong and this is just right-wing conspiracy crap. I didn't write about this stuff last year because I didn't understand it. But at this point, I think the data is pretty clear that 
that they set up Trump and his team to fail with fabricated illegal shenanigans. Yeah, I've been following it pretty closely, and I I think that it it was really bad. Right, and so they should be in prison. It's Uh, just well, I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't send them to prison. I'd send them to trial. So, but if they are guilty of it. Uh, you gotta, can, you gotta. Of course, you have to convict them. Of course, you have yeah. to send them to trial. But if they are guilty of it, the, the proper outcome is for them to end up in prison for many years. It would seem so. Yeah, it would seem so to me too. So, um, and maybe politics has been this dirty the whole way. But I, I would say that this was the a modern DNC machine doing this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the Republicans do it too or not. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea? I think they do a lot of stuff, but I, I, I don't think that the deep state, so-called, as it's currently composed, is much of a Republican thing. I think it's mostly a Democratic Party operation. Well, I would have said it was neither, except for the fact that Trump then became a risk, and so it became a Democratic thing. Yeah. I, would have, I would have said the deep state doesn't care who's in power, as long as it's status quo normal. Yeah. And the, and that it was Trump who represented real risk. Yeah, and it still does. And uh, you know, he's not out of there yet. Uh, I I can't say that I believe the polls one way or another. Oh, I don't believe the polls at all. Yeah. People who literally won't answer that question for there was a poll done that said one third of the population thinks their political views could lose them their job. Oh boy. And it turned out it was bipartisan. Mm-hmm. And so then the question is, therefore, when someone asks you, who are you going to vote for? Is everyone really going to answer that question? Uh Of course. And, you know, I'm openly sort of I'd vote for Trump. I tell people that I don't care. I said and if they get mad, I said, give me a goddamn candidate. Mm -hmm. You keep shoving crap at me. I'll vote for Trump until you come up with something that's till you come up with someone who's not a demented pedophile. (laughs) Okay, one last question. What does America look like a year from now to you? I think it's still pretty chaotic. I don't know whether it's going to be an 11 on the the scale, but I don't think everything's going to settle down. I think the economy will, I think we will finally come to terms with the fact that there weren't for a very long repair job on the economy. Uh And if they're still shutting stuff down because some guy tested positive somewhere, we're going to we're still wearing masks into stores and stuff like that. I think that's going to be very destructive. You think the dollar is going to survive? I don't I don't understand the Forex markets at all. Mm -hmm. The dollar has been going down uh, pretty steadily now for a few weeks. But I don't understand why it goes up or down, you know, so. Here, here's what I, I think is true. The banking system has gotten way, way, way more complicated than is optimal. Mm-hmm. We've got the shadow banking system with all these incredibly leveraged products. We've got all these interconnectivities and the, and the, you know, the repo market. And none of this is constructive. Mm-hmm. This isn't about funding construction of factories and about helping people make payroll this is just people gaming the system on colossal scales yeah and it's another form of racketeering really yeah so now we've got the system where all the plates are spinning on the top of poles and they're keeping them spinning and and i think at some point this system um this highly emergent system goes code red Mm -hmm. and and they can't hold it together so uh 
You know, I, I think, you know, the, the quadrillion in derivatives. And now everyone always says, well, yeah, but one person's derivative is, a, is a, one person owes another. You net them out. No, you don't. When there's 12, when there's a quadrillion and all of a sudden people start trying to cash out of stuff, mm-hmm. there's nowhere to go. Right. There's so I think markets can go bidless. I, you know, I think I think you could reach a point where anyone who could possibly buy an asset class is going to say, I'm not buying right now. Mm-hmm. I, I think we could the banking system could go insolvent at some point, could just freeze solid. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they've got these things called bail ins, which which are sound tame until you realize a bail in is where the people who deposited their money lose. That's not a bail and that's an insolvency. That's a bank run. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, and also if you listen to the Devosians, you know, the Christine Lagarde's and all these guys who get together in Davos and Jackson Hole, the A-holes at the J-hole, and, <laughs> and decide what the world is going to look like, are now using this very odd language of a, a reset. Yeah. They keep using reset. And I'm going, that's a euphemism for something very bad. Yeah, I think it's a euphemism for people lose faith in their currencies. Right, and and they're they're basically saying we got to sh- we're going to have to shake the etch a sketch and we're going to have to start over. <laughs> Christine Lagarde is talking about the reset, and they're talking about cashless society yeah. still, and you know they're trying to warn us that the system won't last forever yeah. and that there's going to be a reset. And when when they're using the word reset, not just some conspiracy guy typing out of his basement. Um, mom's basement. Yeah, you got a problem. Well, yeah, I think we do have a big problem. Uh, we got a big problem in the country and the global economy, and uh, it's going to be very exciting times to live through the next six months. I expect to touch base with you again because you're so interesting to talk to. Well, I look forward to the next chat, and uh, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, we'll still have an internet and things like that to use to chat. Yeah, either that, or I'll ride my mule out to Ithaca, and uh, we can watch the sunrise on on Cayuga Lake. That's exactly right. So, thanks a lot for coming on, Dave, and uh, we will ride again. You bet. <laughs> <laughs>